This is Sam Swartz and Rachel Fields with your local news coming to you live with power from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. An estimated 50,000 customers in southern Wisconsin are or were without power today after severe storms downed power lines, cut out traffic lights, blew roofs off houses, and even put your favorite community radio station off the air. As of 5.10 p.m., more than 33,000 We Energy's customers were without service, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Meanwhile, more than 17,000 MG&E customers were without power in and around Madison after the storm hit. Utility crews are working to restore service. We have producer Nate Weggehout out in the field surveying the damage, and we'll hear more from him in just a few minutes. Meanwhile, in an energy grid operator is warning that there could be rolling blackouts this summer. Officials with the Midwest Independent System Operator Power Grid, a nonprofit organization that delivers electric power across more than a dozen states, have issued an alert to power companies. They say they could struggle to provide electricity as we hit the warmer summer months. Wisconsin Public Service says that's still an unlikely scenario, reports Fox 11 News. Gubernatorial candidate Tim Michaels will stay on the primary ballot this August. That's after state elections officials voted to push aside a Democratic challenge to Michaels' paperwork filings to be on the ballot, reports the Associated Press. Democrats had alleged that Michaels used the wrong address on his nomination papers, leaving him well below the 2,000 valid signatures needed to appear on the ballot. Also last Friday, former Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman appeared in Dane County Court. He appeared in court over an ongoing suit over his handling of public records requests. Gableman appeared in the courtroom while blasting Judge Frank Remington, who compelled Gableman to show up. That's according to reporting from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. After testifying, Gableman characterized the suit to reporters as, quote, political harassment. Gableman's election review to uncover voter fraud that has not materialized has cost taxpayers nearly, taxpayers nearly $1 million. The UW system will maintain its tuition freeze for undergraduate students for another year, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. This freeze has been in effect since 2013. Jay Rothman, the president of the UW system, says that the $25 million of pandemic relief the system received is what has allowed the freeze to continue. The freeze applies only to tuition, though. Room and board, along with other costs, will still increase. Dane County Executive Joe Parisi has advised departments not to exceed their budgets due to inflation, reports the Cap Times. He warns that even with no increase to the budget, the county will face costs of millions more dollars next year. Dane County will not be receiving any more federal funding like what we had come in the last two years due to the pandemic. Parisi has said he hopes there will not be a need to cut programs due to budget shortfalls. And now, on to today's top stories. On Saturday, thousands of demonstrators around the country from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles turned up for the March for Our Lives to advocate for gun control legislation. This follows mass shootings in recent weeks at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, and a church in Laguana Woods, California. One of the hundreds of sister marches took place here in Madison, and WORT reporter Reed Kamai was there to report. Despite overcast skies throughout the day and rain during the latter half of the speeches, hundreds took to the steps of the state capitol building in Madison for the March for Our Lives. Enough is enough! Enough is enough! 
Enough is enough was among the several chants from the attendees as they urged elected officials at the state and federal level to pass gun control legislation. Abigail Sweats is a former teacher and currently serves in the Department of Public Instruction as the communications director. She was among the speakers at the march. In light of past school shootings, she painted a picture of the fears students, parents, and teachers have. Being a student in America means sitting in a desk and wondering if the bullets that fly every single day in this country are coming for you today. Being a parent and a caregiver in America means dropping your kid off at the crossing guard or bus stop and questioning, is this hug the last I will ever give my child? Being a teacher in America means knowing that if those bullets do start flying, my blood will fall first, and it means knowing that even my death cannot keep my students safe. Sweats tells WORT what she would like to see happen legislatively. I think we have to have really robust gun law reform, and that's going to take a lot of work, and it's going to take a lot of different legislation, but I think the most important one is comprehensive background checks for absolutely every kind of gun purchase and banning the AR-15 again. According to the Gun Violence Archive, over 19,000 people have died from gun violence in the United States so far in 2022. The number of mass shootings in that same time frame is 267. The Gun Violence Archive also reports that last weekend was the third straight weekend where the U.S. had 13 mass shootings from Friday to Sunday. Saturday's march was a sequel to the first one which took place in the month of March of 2018. That event followed and was organized by survivors of the shooting at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Eileen Carney, a rising senior at Madison East High School, also spoke. She referred back to the 2018 protests as well as advocacy from decades prior. In 2018, we stood in this exact same place saying the exact same things. And before that, gun violence prevention organizers who paved this road said those same things too. We owe so much to those organizers decades ago who started this fight. The predominantly black and brown gun violence prevention advocates who were doing this work back in the 60s and 70s, and still not much has changed. We're still here, we're still marching. We go back to our roots today as we march literally for our lives. Polling by the Marquette Law School after the Parkland, Florida school shooting in 2018 is the most recent such polling by that institution. It concluded that most Wisconsinites support gun reform. The results show that 81% of Wisconsin residents support background check requirements for gun sales, with 16% in opposition. The numbers are similar among gun owners. 78% of such respondents support background checks, and 18% oppose them. Opinions on a potential ban of assault rifles are more divided, as 56% are in favor of such a move, and 40% are against it. Sarah Dickfoss is a movement organizer for March for Our Lives national efforts. She is confident that the second round of marches can lead to change. I mean, I think showing up again and really showing how powerful the youth are and that we're going to be taking to the votes in the midterms, um, I think that's really important. And hopefully something will change. Hopefully the politicians are seeing that the Gen Z is going to show up in the elections and we are a voice to be reckoned with. And that confidence has at least somewhat been paid. On Sunday, the day after the marches, U.S. Senators announced a bipartisan gun reform proposal. This follows another gun control bill that was passed in the House, but is likely to face defeat in the Senate. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Kamai. 
More wild weather is in store for tomorrow, and rolling in by tomorrow is a heat wave. Temperatures are expected to rise into the low to mid 90s, and that may feel like over 100 degrees in some spots. For how to prepare and practice heat safety tomorrow, we turn to weather producer Caitlin Davis. Dan County will be under a heat advisory tomorrow from 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. after the passing of a strong storm today that brought in a warm front. Temperatures tomorrow are likely to hit the high 90s with a heat index that could reach 105 degrees. The heat combined with the humidity we will be seeing makes for dangerous conditions. With situations of heat advisories, it is recommended that you stay indoors as much as possible as dangerous incidents such as heat sickness, exhaustion, and stroke can occur. In addition, be sure to drink lots of water, wear lightweight and loose clothing, and avoid using appliances such as ovens and stoves. If you are experiencing symptoms such as heat exhaustion, move to a cool or shady place. Elevate the feet and legs slightly and remove any tight or heavy clothing. Sip drinks that contain electrolytes and monitor future symptoms. With your WORT special weather report, I'm producer Caitlin Davis. The time right now is 6:15 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news right here on WORT. Severe storms blew through south central Wisconsin this afternoon, blowing down trees and taking out power lines. More than 17,500 Madison residents lost power this afternoon, and thousands more were without power in south central Wisconsin. After the wind gusts died down, we sent producer Nate Weggyhout into the field to find out what was going on. For more, we turn to Nate and news director Sholly Pittman here in the studio. Thanks, Rachel. Now, WORT was one such place without power for several hours this afternoon, with our power out around 2:50 p.m. and restored at about 4:25. Great for news production. We've had、uh, reports of traffic lights not working, and of course, of downed power lines. As of 5:10 p.m., Madison Gas and Electric was reporting almost 15,000 Madison residents still without power as utility crews worked to clear down tr- down. Lines, trees, and restore service. With me on the line is Nate Weggyhout, who headed out earlier this afternoon when we were in our power outage. Nate, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Charlie. I am here at the Glenway substation for MG&E over on the city's west side.、Uh, I am currently watching some MG&E workers. Uh, working to get power back online for this neighborhood, it's, it seems as if most of this neighborhood over here is currently without any power. 
And that's one neighborhood that you've been driving around uh, downtown. Uh, or, or tell us where you've you've been uh, for the past couple of hours and, and what some more of what you've seen. Well, I've sort of been, I started off downtown, uh, sort of walking my way around there. Specifically, I was over near Gorman and Gilman Street, uh, where things seemed to be uh, not looking too great. There was a tree that was fallen down onto the sidewalk there that had not yet been cleared. That was over on uh, East Gilman by Butler, right across from the Governor Mansions Inn, if you know where that is. Uh, it looked like an older older tree that had fallen over uh, right there. Uh, went over to James Madison Park. Uh, there is everything over there had been sort of flown around. Uh, every single garbage can that I saw had been uh, tossed all over. All over, if you know James Madison Park, you know that there's that large field there in the center. And there were tree branches, large tree branches, even in that field. I'm not entirely sure how they got over there. If they were, they, they looked almost too big to have just been blown over there, but I'm not actually sure how else they could have gotten over there. Uh, it was it was pretty difficult getting around downtown there. There was a lot of uh, roads that were closed or street lights or like traffic lights, I should say, that were completely out. So getting around was a little bit difficult even before the rush hour traffic uh, began there. So the downtown area was not looking good. I also went over to Regent Street walking down there, and it seems as if the traffic lights, trying to figure out exactly which ones are working and which ones are not. The only real way to really tell seems to be to actually get to the traffic light on Regent Street, for example, from around Park Street to Monroe Street. All of the traffic lights were working fine. But as soon as I got past Monroe Street there and started getting into the neighborhoods a little bit, none of those street lights were working. Uh, I saw some down power lines over there. And yeah, it seems the traffic lights, which ones are down, uh, which ones are currently working, seems to be doesn't seem to be too much of a rhyme or reason to it at the moment. Absolutely. Our engineer Victor was telling me about driving in from what is that the the kind of west-ish side Victor and he was telling me that um, he saw blinking red lights the entire way not a single functioning power um, or what are they called? Traffic light. Uh, traffic light. <laughs> Thank you. Tra- my brain's a little scrambled. Traffic light um, in sight. And uh, I hope that you are uh, being safe while driving, of course. Um, uh, trees b- blocking roads and, uh, and you know, traffic generally being a headache. Uh, we have heard reports of a um, semi-truck blown over. I know you haven't been there, uh, but on Madison's east side, a semi-truck was blown over at the interchange where interstates 39, 90, and 94, as well as State Highway 30 come together. No injuries were reported from that. Also, on um, the east side near Madison College, at least two buildings had roofs uh, ripped off of their their top. Um, Tell us more of um, what kind of property damage you've seen to uh, to houses and and businesses and and to, uh, to streets. Well, thankfully, as far as houses go, I haven't seen too much damage. Over here, I'm on the west side at the moment, and when I was downtown, I didn't see too much either. Cars, on the other hand, those seem to have taken a little uh, little bit more damage. I've seen at least two cars uh, in my couple of hours of driving around here that had trees on top of them, including one just about two blocks away from me. Uh, a tree had fallen down onto a car, and it took down a power line with it there. 
As for the road conditions, the main roads, it seems as if the trees have mostly been cleared off of them. I know on a large tree had fallen over on Mineral Point Road earlier on in the day, uh, right near Midvale Boulevard. Uh, Thankfully, when I drove past that just about half an hour ago, it looked as if it had been cleared. Uh, However, as soon as you get into some more of the back streets, that is a different story there. There were a couple roads that were just impassable due to downed trees. Specifically, uh, I was over on Euclid Avenue uh, where a tree was uh, still laying in the middle of the road. And on these back streets, even on the roads that aren't completely blocked, there's still smaller sticks uh, everywhere. I've been trying to drive as careful as I can driving through these as to not puncture a tire because, you know, even... Even if they're not the large branches that are laying down in the road anymore, there's still a lot of the smaller uh, branches that are just completely covering the road. Some at some points where you could barely even see the road, it was all leaves and branches and things like that. And that's that's not even to really talk about the down power lines I saw over on. Uh, uh, where was I? I was right off of North Roby, uh, off of Regent. There was a power line down that was still down around uh, right in front of the house, just off of Regent Street there. Uh, the house that was in front of, strangely enough, still did have power. I could see lights on in the windows there. However, I couldn't get close to the house because of the down power line that was there. And the police were were there on the scene. They had put up uh, caution tape uh blocking off the area same thing over right across from uh, uh right across from edgewood college on monroe street uh there it looked as if there was at one time a down power line there was still a lot of police tape up it looked like whatever was there had been cleared up however tell us about what you've uh what you've seen from emergency management from uh, police officers, from fire trucks. I've heard many uh, whizzing past uh, WORT. Who have you talked to who's working to, uh, and what have you seen working to clean up this mess? Well, sort of going throughout the whole, the entire time that I've been out here, I've been seeing and hearing uh, Madison Fire, uh, fire engines, uh, police uh, throughout the whole city. And it's not just Madison either. Uh, I was actually able to talk with a uh, a state patrol officer who was here. Uh, he was over downtown area near Gilman Avenue responding to a call. And I spoke with him for a couple minutes, and he said that all of their scanners are just going haywire right now. Everything's going crazy. Uh, well, they're saying that they're getting tons of calls of down trees through all the throughout the entire city, uh, down phone. Fi- uh, uh, power lines, I should say, uh, they, he said that it was just everywhere. And it's not, I've seen a, uh, some Fitchburg fire engines as well. I saw those downtown, uh, on Gilman. Uh, so I, it, it seems as if it's not just, uh, we're, they're sort of bringing in the Calvary, Calvary to sort of get everything up and running here. Absolutely. Um, lastly, we only have a couple minutes left, but you mentioned that you were speaking with a family uh, just before you got on the phone here. Um, where, where, where approximately are they, and, and what did they have to say? So I was over on the west side on Topfer Avenue 
uh, right near uh, Glenway, uh, uh, right next to the Glenway substation here. And they were without power and they were standing outside, actually, uh, one, just waiting for their power to come back on. But there was also a tree branch uh, that was hanging over. It looked as if at one time it was stuck in the tree and hanging over their car. They had moved their cars and they were actually using a basketball to uh, throw at the tree branch to try and dislodge it to, to come down safely and not land on anybody's cars. And they said that they lost power about the same time uh, that we did at WORT, a little before 3 o'clock there. Uh, and they actually, as we were talking, interestingly, uh, the power did actually come on for them, and they got all excited. Uh, hey, it's about time for us to make dinner. Uh, everything like that. You can watch the evening news. And then uh, as I was walking back to my car after we had spoken, we actually all heard a loud bang coming from a couple blocks away. And suddenly the entire neighborhood had lost power once again. And that's why I came over here to the uh, Glenway substation, actually, uh, was to see if I could see anything there. And it looks as if whatever that bang was, it was actually a few blocks away. I talked to a man on the street here who said that he saw a power line uh, sort of fly off of the pole there and caught on fire as it was falling to the ground, shooting sparks. Uh, and that was just about a block, two blocks away from me here. So, Wow, uh, that's some yeah. vivid imagery. Nate, thank you so much. I hope you continue to stay safe um, as you're out this evening and documenting. And we'll have some uh, photos from uh, today up on our social media soon. Nate Wegehout is the assistant news director here at WORT. We sent him out earlier in the day um, to check out what's going on around town uh, after today's severe storm. Nate, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for talking with me, Shali. All right, and back to our hosts in the studio. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us. Last fall, the Wisconsin Historical Society found a 1,200-year-old canoe at the bottom of Lake Mendota. After the careful recovery, the Historical Society took delicate measures to preserve the canoe, meaning that a physical study of the canoe would have to wait. Fortunately, the UW College of Engineering offered a solution to the issue, creating a 3D scan of the canoe. Last month, WORT's Kai Brito spoke with Lennon Rogers, director of the UW Granger Engineering Design Innovation Labs, and James Skybo, state archaeologist with the Wisconsin Historical Society. They talk about what they found out about the canoe and the process of digitally preserving the artifact. So uh, when it comes to this 1,200-year-old wooden canoe, so that was recently unearthed last year, in fall of 2021. What, if any, discoveries or knowledge have you learned from this archaeological find so far? Or what do you anticipate that this canoe might reveal? Well, yeah, we discovered it. Tammy Thompson uh, made the initial discovery. She's a maritime diver in my office. And we, uh, it, in last summer and in November, it was pulled up. It was pulled up because it was mostly intact, and it's just the most um, dugout canoe in Wisconsin. And um, and we're in the process now of preserving it. And there's a lot of things we could learn from it. We could learn about the technology of the time. We could learn about subsistence. Some net sinkers that were initially attached to a fishing net were found in the boat as well. So, uh, and that's the first example of inland boat net fishing that we have here in Wisconsin. And the remarkable thing is just to think about how 
someone would cut down a white oak. That's one thing we discovered. It was made out of white oak, a very hard and dense wood with stone tools. And so there's evidence of burning on the inside of the canoe okay. uh, because they would burn and char the inside and smash it out and then carve it out with, with other tools. Um, and so, uh, and it's, it's undergoing the two and a half year preservation process now, mm-hmm. but before we started that, we collaborated with, with Lennon on a scanning project. We pulled it up cleaned it as well as we could. And then we wanted a, a perfect reproduction of the canoe. So while it's in the preservation process for the next two and a half years, we'll have something to study, to look at uh, use marks, to look at uh, capacity and, and all kinds of different things. And that's, you know, and that's where Lennon comes in as a, me- as a mechanical engineer uh, and his expertise. And all of that uh, reasoning and process behind it is why Lenin's really needed for here. And that, that's why during the analysis process of this, a digital scanning method was used. Uh, so Lenin, your time to shine here. How does the high-resolution 3D scanning program work? And what information uh, do you anticipate being able to gather from, from these uh, models, these model renderings? Yeah, the scanner that we used uh, is laser-based, so it shines a, a pattern that's created by lasers onto the surface. And then there are two cameras that look um, at the surface to see how the laser deforms. Um, and from that, um, using the algorithms, it backs out the, the shape, the, basically the, the surface shape, and all the way down to the details um, that are needed to look at tool marks um, and other things. Um, but I guess the most interesting thing is that it's it's much more than image. It's actually depth information, so it gives you three dimensional uh, information on on the entire surface of the canoe. I think what's kind of interesting is even the process of the three D scanning. It's like oh yeah, you three D scan it, and it's it, it's actually kind of intensive. <laughs> so oh, okay, when it was Jim and and me, and then a, a lot of other people were a part of uh, Scott from the historical study was there with a scan, and it took about a half of a day. Wow. Uh, we scanned it in sections. A lot of it was just getting it all set up and doing it methodically. I saw um, those pictures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we could have done it quicker, but we were, we were really trying to do the, the best that we could given that we only had a, this one shot essentially to, to scan it. So we had met beforehand and walked through some, some plans that we had. And so then, then the, actually the, during the scan, a lot of it was just getting those um, pieces set up that we needed for the scan. And then, like I said, it took about a half a day when all was said and done just with the scan. And then it was a need to be there as the team put it back, you know, and put it back in the water. Uh, but then after that, it was a series of something like, you know, 20 scan, 20 different scans, um, different sections of the, of the canoe. We had marked it out, given each of the sections a different number and, and had a detailed scan of that area. And then um, there's software that comes with the scanner that's pretty advanced. And so then I was able to stitch all of the sketch or all the scans together um, into the entire canoe. We weren't able to scan the bottom of the canoe because at this time we can't flip it over. And so part of the effort was just to try to come up with the best estimate for what the bottom was. Um, in terms of how it fits in with the scan. Right, yeah, I'm already thinking about this, like a 3D animation program like Blender. That's what immediately pops into my mind, thinking about the, the scale and uh, the structure and how things are moving a, a, about each other. This also makes me anticipate that this could potentially be a blueprint 
for you to create a replica model for study. Is that possible from this? Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> wow. I wasn't. This is, uh, I know this is radio, but I'm holding up a, a, a miniature printout that Lennon has made for us. And, you know, one of the things that I'm excited about, especially, especially as we move, the facility that Lennon has is absolutely amazing, by the way. And the great thing about this kind of collaboration is it just gives you new ideas. Just walking in there made, made uh, and just talking with Lennon came up with some different kinds of ideas, like trying to figure out why it sank. And that's an engineering question. And also perhaps making a replica like this one out of this kind of, I don't know, plastic material in an exhibit where kids could jump into the canoe and, and feel what it was like. But also, I mean, this is the thing that I'm, I still think about, Lennon, is that when you took me into the sort of the wood crafting area, there is the capacity to get a big oak log and create an exact replica out of white oak. Yeah, I could give a little info about the facility that I oversee for the College of Engineering, because um, Jim alluded to it. Sure. So it's, I oversee the Granger Engineering Design Innovation Labs, and it's really a series of labs. And it, it's, it's the home for all things to do with prototyping and fabrication in the College of Engineering. So we're the stewards of all those facilities. We have a big team here of people that help students or researchers when they come in. Jim is kind of in that camp in some way. He, you know, he part of the community here at UW and has a need. And that's kind of the way that we work with a lot of people across campus. Yeah, and Jim was mentioning that, which is an interesting application, is that now that we have a computerized version of the canoe, it's basically the X, Y, Z of every single point on the on the canoe. You can use tools, digital tools, to then cut out a replica. I mean, uh, Jim was holding his hand there, um, a 3D printed version, you can do that too. So you can do it in a lot of different ways, but we do have, one of the tools we have is a very large, it's about four feet by eight feet, computer controlled cutting machine, essentially. It's uh, it's called a router, CNC router, um, but you could cut it out. I mean, you're not going to get to the level of detail that we have in the scan, just yeah, right, right. the the cutting tool, but you could come very close if you wanted to. It just depends on how much time you want to put into it. Well, it sounds like this method could potentially work for other objects on a more preservation focused archaeological finds. Is that correct? This, this could be like a future uh, standard procedure. You know, since um, Lenin has come over, it sort of cha- it changed everyone's direction. You know, the Historical Society has a huge collection of objects and they're taking in objects all the time and they photograph or scan all of them when they come in. You know, and Lennon, we're having a meeting here in, in 40 minutes with Lennon about he's part of the canoe team going forward. It's an interdisciplinary group of botanists and geologists and engineers and archaeologists and to think about uh, the Mendota canoe and what the lake levels were like and what the climate was like during this period. And just to learn more about sort of the context of this uh, of this canoe. Well, it sounds like you've got uh, a lot of questions. You've gotten some answers and there's a lot more work left to do. So thank you to James Skibo, uh, state archaeologist at the Wisconsin Historical Society and Lennon Rogers, director of the UW Granger Engineering Design Innovation Labs. Yesterday marks the 14th anniversary of the Nuclear Freeze Rally in New York City. The rally of one million people and its aftermath show mass movements can bring massive changes relatively quickly. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has more on this edition of The Past Isn't Past. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. 
For the unnamed and unnumbered Who struggle brave and long For the union men and women Standing up and standing Yesterday, June 12th, marks the day 40 years ago that a million people marched in New York City's Central Park for a nuclear freeze. It was a rally for an end to the nuclear arms race, the major growing threat of the Cold War between the then-dominant world powers, the U.S. and the Soviet Union. It was not only the largest anti-nuclear demonstration, but the largest political demonstration of any kind in the nation's history. Nothing like it has happened again, either. It represented the high-water mark of protest. The march was the culmination of a movement begun in the 70s with resistance to nuclear power, which then expanded to include nuclear arms. Its immediate goal, launched in early 1980, a call to halt the nuclear arms race, written by anti-nuclear activist Randall Forsberg, was a bilateral Soviet-American freeze on testing, production, and further deployment of nuclear weapons. In 1982, freeze resolutions were introduced in nine states and passed in eight. There were also countless local freeze resolutions passed by local governments, supported by grassroots groups, which had sprung up nearly everywhere. Later, a watered-down freeze resolution passed the House and the Senate. Although the freeze movement peaked with the growing anxiety over Reagan's nuclear buildup, it's important to remember efforts started in President Carter's final year with the so-called Carter Doctrine. After the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, Carter threatened to use nuclear arms if the Soviet Union attempted to move beyond Afghanistan to dominate the Persian Gulf and its oil reserves. The movement powerfully undercut public support for Reagan's nuclear buildup, according to a CBS New York Times poll between 1981 and 1985. Support for increased military spending dropped from 61% to 16%. Reagan, after speaking out against the freeze, at one point claiming foreign agents had helped instigate the campaign, was forced to change his position. In April 1982, shortly after the freeze resolution was introduced in Congress, Reagan began declaring publicly and repeatedly that a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. The first time he made that statement, he added, to those who protest against nuclear war, I can only say I am with you. The June 12th rally demonstrated the power of bringing diverse voices to the peace movement and how nuclear weapons and the civil rights movement were inextricably linked. Many people of color groups joined the organizing effort and the march like the Reverend Herbert Dougherty's National Black United Front, BUF, the Asian American Caucus for Disarmament, Hispanics for Disarmament, and the African-American Coordinating Committee. The latter served as an umbrella group for Harlem Fightback, the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, Women for Racial and Economic Equality, the National Conference of Black Lawyers, the National Tenants Organization, Black Veterans for Social Justice, the National Conference of Black Pastors, and many others. Led largely by BUF, they formed the Third World and Progressive People's Coalition, calling for unilateral nuclear disarmament, an end to U.S. military aggression in Central America, and an end to racism in the U.S. The March's National Planning Committee incredibly initially resisted people of color participation, but after meetings led by Reverend Dowdy of BUF, rally committee organizers came around. When the rally took place, half the leadership was black, 
One million demonstrators marched through Central Park and Midtown Manhattan. Companion rallies were held both at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena with 90,000 people and in San Francisco with 50,000. Smaller rallies happened across the nation. Reagan began to seek negotiations with the Soviet Union. In March 1985, Mikhail Gorbachev came to power. Gorbachev was committed to nuclear disarmament. In the years that followed, Reagan and his successor, George H.W. Bush, signed a series of nuclear treaties. By the early 90s, the U.S. and Soviet Union had ceased testing, development, and deployment of nuclear weapons. Moreover, they had substantially reduced nuclear arsenals and ended the Cold War. Today, we face the twin existential crises of the threat of nuclear confrontation and global climate change. But the nuclear freeze movement anniversary, which was observed virtually around the nation yesterday, can offer us hope in people's power to create the change we need. And that is our story for today. For the past isn't past, I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.47 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Each Monday, Bridging the Gap examines the digital culture across generations. This week, feature contributor Teresa Yen takes a look at body politics. Just last month, Yumi Nu became the first ever Asian American model to grace the cover of Sports Illustrated. Not only that, but she is also a plus-size model. Her appearance shows us that we should continue to strive towards more body inclusivity as a society. However, not everyone was pleased with her cover photo. Jordan Peterson, a Canadian clinical psychologist and YouTube personality, retweeted Nu's photo and commented that, quote, sorry, not beautiful and no amount of authoritarian tolerance is going to change that, end quote. He immediately received hundreds of backlash and ultimately decided to withdraw from Twitter, but he has made no attempt to retract his statement before he does so. This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring the connection and differences between generations. Joining us this week is Dr. Kate Phelps. She is a lecturer in the Gender and Women's Studies Department at UW-Madison, and her research focuses on body politics and fat studies. I asked Dr. Phelps what was the significance of Yumi Nu being on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Asking this question about why should a representation like this matter, it matters a great deal because... It's all at once a recognition of something that is shifting, not only in sort of the social or popular mindset regarding changing ideas of what we would consider to be a quote unquote worthy or attractive body. It operates as a symbol of really pretty significant political change. Representation is not the be all end all. It's an important part of seeing meaningful social change. I think the representation of this person on a cover of Sports Illustrated, because we we associate Sports Illustrated and the swimsuit issue in particular as very much like a function, a temperature taker of like the current male gaze moment, right? And that's really how we measure worth of female and feminine bodies in a lot of ways. Despite making history as the first Asian-American woman and plus-size model to be on Sports Illustrated, New still faced backlash. It seems that our society has not moved past stigmatizing fat bodies. 
this notion that we have that our ideas about bodies have always been static or just determined and there they stay. The history of our anti-fat sentiments are actually quite new. I mean, we could really pinpoint them to the industrial revolution and and seeing things change over time. And what we know as the sort of modern diet industry really didn't even start to proliferate in a broad sense until the 1950s. And much of that was coming from sort of post-World War II anxieties. So when we think about this sort of unchecked tacit knowledge of, well, fat is bad, the end, we have to really critically question, well, where is that coming from? It's, it is history. It is times of civil and cultural unrest. It's changing gender roles. It's, it's changes in media. It's advances in technology. It's all of those things. And not least of which is really the proliferation of the rhetoric of an obesity epidemic that really didn't start until the 1990s and into the early part of the 2000s. When we question those anti-fat sentiments, we're actually having a bigger conversation about things like racism, about capitalism, um, about ability, right? About, and all of these uh, ideas of what is the worth that we put on a body. Dr. Phelps concluded our conversation with providing a couple of different ways for people to unlearn fat stigma. I'm a fat person and I like, and I self-identify that way. And people will often like bulk at that. It throws people off, right? (laughs) But I think one thing we can do is become a little more courageous in our use of that word and recognize it as a not only neutral descriptor, but as a valuable and desirable descriptor for people. It is literally a descriptor of size. And I think shifting away from the use of language like overweight and obesity is something really simple that people can do to disrupt their sort of everyday interactions and and feelings and thoughts whether it's whether it's for themselves whether it's within like an interpersonal relationship whether it's professionally right it's an element of unlearning where if we if we make small shifts in our language to be more weight inclusive because the language of things like overweight or obesity not only pathologizes bodies, but it also suggests that there is quote unquote, like a right weight and fat people exist, have always existed (laughs) in the same way that thin people do. Right. And then I am like a huge proponent of shifting your visual diet or like adding to your visual diet. Uh, There are so many incredible social media influencers, so much incredible content going on on social media and in popular media in general, incredible podcasts, people that are creating content who are doing social media series, who are offering up lecture series to talk about these things, to learn about these. I would put a plug in right away for the maintenance phase podcast, which has become a top 100 podcast. I don't think we need to look much farther to realize like people are interested in hearing about these things. And I know like as an academic, I'm very, very lucky and privileged to do work that I feel 
really emotionally and politically and socially invested in, in a lot of ways and matters to my body as well. Something like the maintenance phase podcast or like the fat women of color Instagram page. And then like, once you follow one, it'll recommend you for more. Right. And it really can do remarkable things just in terms of that unlearning. If you are immersing yourself visually with different kinds of bodies that may feel uncomfortable at first, but it, it these simple shifts, these little things that we can do in a in a daily practice, right, can can do a tremendous amount of work like towards that unlearning. For Bridging the Gap and WORT News, I'm Teresa Yen. Today on the Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies. One is the fun summertime blockbuster Jurassic World Dominion. The other is Metal Lords, a coming-of-age movie on the small screen. A baby raptor? I made a promise we would bring her home. You made a promise to a dinosaur? Yeah. What? That was a clip from the trailer for Jurassic World, Dominion, co-written and directed by Colin Trevorrow. Trevorrow also directed the last two Jurassic Worlds, the original with Steven Spielberg, Jurassic Park, 1993, that featured Michael Crichton, who wrote the books as one of its screenwriters, is still the best. But if you enjoyed the last two worlds, you'll like this one. This is a fun summertime movie with lots of action and great special effects along with a fine cast of sympathetic humans, plus a couple of pretty good villains. In fact, the film brings the best people from the original, Laura Dern, as Dr. Ellie Sadler, Sam Neill as Alan Grant, and of course, Jeff Goldblum as Dr. Ian Malcolm. I don't think you could have a Jurassic movie without Jeff Goldblum. We also get the return of Chris Pratt, the Velociraptor Wrangler, Owen Grady, and Bryce Dallas Howard as Claire Deering, still trying to save the dinosaurs. This time, she has sensible shoes. This movie picks up several years after the last one, where a volcano explodes on the isolated island where the dinosaurs have been restored, and they escape into the broader world. Humans haven't figured out how to coexist with dinosaurs, but some have figured out how to make a buck off it. One of the film's more arresting scenes involves an underground black market bazaar where some of the smaller dinosaurs are traded or served as sausage. There's also the return of the evil biotech corporate theme with conniving CEO Runa Delacourt playing Scott Hayes. This time Delacourt's firm Biosyn has cornered the legitimate market for dinosaur DNA research and profiteering. Probably the hardest thing to believe in the whole movie. The world governments have agreed to give one company that much power. Sadly, the film's several people of color are stuck in small roles. It's good to see B.D. Wong back as Dr. Wu, but Omar C's talent is wasted in a small cameo. Likewise, Dewanda Weiss and Mama Duate have small but important, almost sidekick roles. Deechen Lachman is a great supporting minion. All in all, though, the film has a lot of fun action-adventure scenes. There's a great chase scene with Owen Grady, Chris Pratt, on a motorcycle, being chased by dinosaurs through winding streets in an exotic location. The dinosaurs are incredibly real-looking, and there's a great mashup battle to the death scene at the end. See it on the biggest screen you can find if you can do so safely. Now for a fun coming of age movie on the small screen. Metal is power. Metal is speed. Metal is 
key to everything. That was clipped from the trailer for Metal Lords, directed by Peter Solitz. But it's been the dream of D.B. Weiss, co-creator of Game of Thrones for years. Weiss produced the film and wrote the screenplay. This is an enjoyable, if predictable movie about three teens who start a metal band. The most outstanding character is newcomer Adrian Greensmith as Hunter Sylvester, an angry high school kid with divorced parents, desperately looking for meaning. Our narrator, Kevin Schleib, played by Jaden Martell, his best and only friend says, Hunter has tried a lot of roles, but metal has lasted the longest. Hunter plays a mean guitar, and Kevin, a shy kid who initially just goes along with Hunter, becomes a great self-taught drummer. Hunter auditions for a third band member, preferably another guitar player, but rejects their only applicant. Kevin wants a bass player, another shy kid, Emily, Isis Hainsworth, in the band. Hunter initially resists, but finally gives in. Kevin and Emily have the sweetest scenes in the movie. The film's best part is in its final third, with the predictable parental obstacles put in place and a fun battle of the band's conclusion. It's unfortunate that Emily's mental health issues are treated too lightly. At one point, she throws aside her meds. All in all, though, a pretty good, if predictable, film mostly for the energetic performance of Adrian Greensmith. It recently started showing on Netflix. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporters tonight were Reed Kamai and Madeline Plattenberg. They worked furiously throughout the day, including while without power. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Teresa Yang, and Kai Brito. Victor Calzoni engineered this show. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night. Mm -hmm.